0: From the miniaturized capsule inside Martin Short,
1: it's the IGN Digigods. So please welcome the amazing two-headed transplant, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Outstanding! An interspace reference—that's going deep. Corey, who went deep with interspace. That was written by Stuart Moncure, who I think was picturing uh, Rosie Greer as Wade Major, or vice versa. Oh, uh, no. That's, that was the other reference. Wait, wait,
2: wait. So you have a choice of what? ice
1: cream. I have a choice of ice cream. Yes,
2: because I have two. Either salted caramel.
1: Okay. You're not – get into the microphone there. Either salted caramel. Yes, okay.
2: Or white chocolate with a chocolate ripple swirl in it.
1: Oh, uh, salted, salted, caramel. Caramel salted, cream, salted caramel, salted caramel Really? You don't want yeah. the
2: white chocolate ice cream? Have you ever had white chocolate Why ice cream? Why
1: would you give me the choice if you're going to try and talk me into the other one? <laughs>
2: I this is true
1: Okay, goodbye <laughs> Okay Anyway, um, you know, what an interesting week we've got, We have a VoxBox, we got some uh, listener mail And uh, we also have this very interesting uh, discussion that erupted on the Facebook page For those who are not on the Facebook page, you should be and um, the sad reality is, 20th Century Fox has announced that Simpsons, The Simpsons will no longer be released on DVD. Uh, apparently after, you know, they skipped a few seasons on the last release and uh, have effectively decided that the earlier DVD releases will not be transitioned to Blu-ray, and uh, it just isn't selling like it needs to. Uh, there's a little bit of a glut in Simpsons' interest, and uh, you will only be able to watch the episodes on the Simpsons World website which I don't even know if, if that has a complete uh, set of them now, but that's really unfortunate. Um, however, it, however.
2: It, it's a little soft because it was sitting out. Yeah, that's fine. This is salted caramel ice cream. Okay, thank you. You're going to try it. You're going to get a scale of 1 to 10, folks. Wade Major. Wade is taking a taste of it. He's putting the spoon mm. to his mouth for the second time. What does he think?
1: It's good. It's good. You did right. well. Thank you very much. You did well, Grasshopper. That's good.
2: Keep talking.
1: Yeah. No, so the so question, if Mark wants to chime in from the other room, is um, will they, as is suggested, are they basically just going to wait until The Simpsons has run its course and then release all 72 seasons on uh, Blu-ray and DVD, or just Blu-ray as a mega monster set, thereby infuriating the three generations of people who grew up with the show but died before it ended its run? Mark didn't even hear that. He has no clue. Okay, well, I'm going to do the show. I'm going to do this show. Stag this week because Mark is just not pulling his weight. Mark, I'm going to start by going through some documentaries. Okay, actually, you know what? I'm going to do as long as you're you're, you're not I, here.
2: I, I, I wanted the white chocolate ice cream with the chocolate swirl.
1: Oh, of course you did. All right. Well, I'm going to get started. I'm going I'm to uh, talk about some classical stuff really quickly. Got a lot of great stuff coming out of Naxos this week. Uh, wait, wait, wait,
2: wait. Yeah. Wait. What was, what was the question you were asking everybody?
1: The Simpsons. Uh, are, are we? Is I you know, know? Will the Simpsons ever end its run? Get the mic right up there. You like eat that why, mic?
2: Why don't you just? Why are you ten inches away from the mic? But I have to eat the mic.
1: Well, because tilt it, tilt it so that it actually faces your mouth. That's the way this works. That's why they're called microphones.
2: Right. Right. Professional production My this gosh, week. It's just... <laughs> oh, so the I was right, the Simpsons. Yeah, not, not going to be on DVD. Uh, yeah. their DVD. Uh, That's production.
1: exactly what I was just saying. Thank you for repeating what I was saying.
2: Uh, it's a shame. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing, though. When look, when you've been on for twenty five years,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know you. Can it's, you a glut. It, it's, it's a glut. It's a glut. There's much. there's too much. There's yeah. really no reason. You know, do you really why want the want season
1: 27? This is why it's dumb. We always point this out. This is why it's dumb to release Bonanza series, you know, season 10, part 1 or whatever. Bonanza and Gunsmoke, they really need to just release both of those series in their entirety. They do. It's it's dumb. People who, who grew up with Gunsmoke totally resent now. They waited 20 years to see the end of the show. They got to, what, wait another 20 years before the whole thing comes out on D V D just release the whole series. There's no reason to be playing that game season by season. Paramount and CBS. They need to just stop it. They need to just stop it. Get that whole thing out there.
2: That said, I will always want those shows on Blu-ray or DVD, but preferably Blu-ray obviously. Simpsons. Simpsons, but I mean mm-hmm. like any show. But I know the Simpsons is cute. because I want the I want the video quality. I want the commentaries. Mm-hmm. I want the behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I want the extras. I want I want it archivally to coin a word. I want it archivally stored on my shelf forever. I agree. So it is a shame all the way look, put it this way. If the Simpsons was canceled after twelve seasons, there'd be twelve season mm-hmm. sets and people would be happy. Yep. But if you're getting into first of all, Fox makes makes a whole lot of money syndicating that show that shows on, you know, FXX all the time, right?
1: That is good ice cream. Thank you very much. That is sweet.
2: So what I'm saying is that there are many there are other revenue streams for the Simpsons a lot more lucrative at this point than DVDs. So I understand True. why they'd want to get rid of it. I agree. It's you. just a shame from an, an historical perspective. Yep. That's a shame. I agree. See, I answered your question. I agree, thank you. I give a moderately intelligent right. response.
1: I'm gonna blow through some classical right here from Naxos real quickly, just to start the show, get us warmed up. We have a Vox box, by the way, and we've got uh, some listener names. Not yet. No, stop. Uh, so all of these are labels that are distributed by Naxos. First two are uh, from Unitel Classica, distributed by Max, uh, Naxos. Um, and uh, well, actually, no, I'm, I take that back. They are uh, – it is Accentus Music and Unitel. There are a lot of different labels involved in these things, and it sometimes gets a little confusing. Um Anyway, the uh, the first one is uh, Barenboim directing Bruckner's Ninth Symphony with the Staatskapelle Berlin. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a fan of Bruckner, Bruckner's kind of like uh, if Beethoven had been meaner and angrier and louder. That's what uh, – he would have been Bruckner. Uh, and then we have one from the Lucerne Festival Orchestra. This is the memorial concert for Claudio Abado. And uh, this is a, a collection of different stuff. There's an excerpt from uh, Beethoven's Third Symphony – there's uh, Franz Schubert's 7th Symphony, uh, some other composers that you've never heard of, and uh, then uh, the 3rd Symphony, just the Adagio portion, uh, Gustav Mahler. Uh, that's, a, that's a lovely concert. And then we have um, these three from Unitel Classica. Uh, exclusively Unitel Classica. and this one is uh, Symphonies Number no. One and Two by Gustav Mahler, uh, conducted by Pavo Yarvi, who is just a fantastic conductor. I- I've loved everything Yarvi's ever done. Uh, love his um, uh, love his complete Grieg set, and then a companion to that is Symphonies Number no. Three and Four by Mahler. So you can get them separate or together. These are all Blu-rays, and then uh, this is just fantastic the uh, the Royal Concert Gabo Orchestra uh, conducted by Andres Nelsons doing uh, Richard Strauss. Not just also Sprock Zarathustra, but uh, also Macbeth, believe it or not. Macbeth is pretty, is, is rarely, uh, this is his Opus 30, uh, is, is also Sprock Zarathustra, and then Opus 23 is Macbeth, and then there's also a piece here, Opus 28, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce because it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a German thing, so go look it up. Opus twenty-eight of Richard Strauss. It's a long German title, and I will mutilate it if I try to pronounce it. That's why I was always the black sheep in the family. I could never master the mother tongue. You know that. But anyway, did you know that also Sprach Zarathustra is longer than just the theme to two thousand one? It's
2: not just thirty seconds. Who knew?
1: Wow. Your microphone is is, is here. Let's. is that my fault? There we go. No, I know. It was no, I, the cord. It was. It was the cord. Thank it's you. my bad. I'm sorry. Jesus. We're a professional operation. <laughs>
2: I don't know what we are, but it's not professional. It's, uh, anyway.
1: So, uh, also uh, from Art House Music, we got this show going so quickly today. I, I, I plugged everything in so quickly and just got blasting. And, and Tim was here. We were talking to Tim. That was We were my...
2: talking to Tim Cogshell. Tim was here. He and,
1: was. Uh, you know, Tim says hi to everybody. Uh, Orpheus. <laughs> Art House Music. Uh, Orpheus. Uh, choreography for nine dancers and seven musicians. It, not my not my favorite thing this is a, this is kind of an interesting thing that they did with the uh, National Theater of Chiaot in 2010 um, kind of taking the whole Orpheus thing it's sort of more from in, the, in the in the vein of Black Orpheus the movie and creating kind of a, uh, a a modern dance thing using all kinds of classical music including everything from Tchaikovsky to Philip Glass uh, and it I don't know that it works really well um, some you know I'm more traditional when it comes to dance Uh, exhibitions, but anyway. And then uh, Zubin Mehta uh, with the Vienna Philharmonic um, and uh, conducting Jose Carreras and Andrea Rost in an open-air concert from 1999, the Johann Strauss Gala. Uh, Really wonderful stuff, just absolutely fantastic. And 1999, you know, you're not really deep into the digital recording era at the time, so... Uh, you, you, there's al- almost more natural sound to this that I think comes across really, really beautifully. And then uh, finally, we got a bunch of uh, opera and junk and stuff from Opus Arte.
2: Uh.
1: Um, Mozart's "The Magic Flute." Uh, here, oh, I have a magic flute, Wade, I'm sure in my do. pants.
2: Oh. <laughs>
1: it's all over. It's so all over. Uh, anyway, this is this is a, a beautiful uh, performance from the Dutch National Opera. Uh, the, with the Netherlands Chamber Orchestra And the chorus of the Dutch National Opera Who knew that the Dutch could su- do something so cool Other than play soccer And then we also have Verdi's Don Carlo With the uh, orchestra and chorus Teatro Reggio Torino which is also lovely. I wonder if Mark Sanderson, our friend Mark Sanderson, who has spent like this, doesn't it feel like he's been in Italy for the last month and a half?
2: I, I don't know what the deal is. It seems like, didn't we talk about this on a previous show? We may have. He, he goes there, he posts a bunch of stuff on The F- Beautiful uh, Facebook. He was in F- Sardinia Beautiful.
1: for like a week and a half and it, now he's in Rome again and he's just, he just keeps it's, posting pictures. It's
2: for, pictures. A woman. It's for a wo- this woman he met. Uh, it's, 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 it's damn yeah, because we, we damn talked worth, about damn this. Damn worth it, it. We talked about how we, last time we saw him was at the Planet of the Apes premiere yeah, yeah. with Matt Reeves, the director. Yeah, and he sat with all of us, and Mark told us about how he met this beautiful woman, and it's a very, very long distance relationship, but it seems like making it he, work.
1: He's in Italy, man, and he's, he's having Italy. a grand time, and I'm loving the photos; they're fantastic. Uh, so, anyway, speaking of now, we now we move to the Royal Ballet at the Royal Opera House, uh, the Winter's Tale, which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful, wonderful, wonderful staging and performance. Uh, this is, uh, if, you've, if you've never seen this, you've you, you got to check it out. This is really absolutely fantastic. Uh, wonderful cast, great choreography, just a beautiful, beautiful ballet. This is the world premiere recording of it. And then, uh, lastly, La Belle et la... Uh, la Bette et la Belle, which is the Beast and the Beauty. You see, they reverse the Beauty and the Beast.
2: Whoa! It's I the same yeah, that's sto- crazy.
1: Yeah, same story. Uh, anyway, this is choreography and staging uh, with the Ballet du Capitole. Uh, by Kader Balarbi. And, um, uh, you know, same story. It's a little uh, a little uh, impressionistic, but uh, perfectly serviceable if you love the story. And that segues me to another piece of news this week. Mark? Yes, sir. Have you been keeping up with the casting for the Beauty and the Beast live-action film from Disney?
2: Yeah, they just cast... Uh, Ian McKellen is Cogsworth. It,
1: it, it's like every time they announce a new piece of, of, of casting, I just think... Dang it! I'm gonna have to like this thing because that just sounds perfect. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> it just does. It's like suddenly, you know, uh, Magneto slash the, you know, the wizard slash uh, what, is it, what he, know,
2: it, some Hamlet thing he did. Yeah, Henry the Third, whatever and
1: Richard the Third, and you know, he's like he's just doing all these legendary. Things. Now he's Cogsworth. Wow. Wow.
2: I don't know who's directing that.
1: I forget. I Look it up. That. Get on that.
2: Uh, you know what? I think, I'm a little worried about Disney. Just, Disney's well, pissing me off.
1: It, well, look, they, 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 that makes sense. And Cinderella's doing well, and I was skeptical of that, and that makes sense. And, and obviously this is all predicated on, on how successful the Angelina Jolie thing was. Um, you know, That turned out well for them. So now they're going live action on everything. But I've got to tell you, the announcement that they're going to do a live action version of Milan does not, is not encouraging.
2: Bill Condon. Bill that Condon, thing- that's right. Beauty and the Beast. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. Cotton's I like him. Dream. You know, Kinsey. I, mean, he, I love Kinsey. Gods he, he and is, Monsters.
1: He has not been perfect. He has. He's. He's laid a few eggs in his career. He um has. So we'll see. We'll see.
2: He's drift. He's dr- He's drifting a little bit.
1: A little tiny bit. Yes. Yes.
2: There was a trajectory there. Gods and Monsters. Cool. You know, Kinsey was amazing. Then he hits the big time with Dream Girls, and then he did Twilight. You know, screw that. And um, Fifth Estate with Benedict Cumberbatch was that, okay. Yeah.
1: Well, now, as long as we're segwaying, Mark, we're segwaying because you just mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch, and we have my second favorite film of the year on Blu-ray, eight Academy Award nominations, The Imitation Game, winner of Best Original Screenplay. Did it really? Uh, It did. (laughs) I forgot, (laughs) right? Oh, listen to you
2: you know uh, okay.
1: Graham Moore Graham Moore I mean look I, I think I think Morton Tildum put himself in the a list category as director of this thing it is beautifully directed this this whole thing is executed so professionally uh, Cumberbatch is fantastic as anybody knows this is this is effectively the uh, the story of the breaking of the Enigma code in uh, uh, during World War two and it uh, tells the story of uh, Alan Turing who is the British genius, sort of the father of the modern computer, who was this introvert, uh, also a closeted gay man at the time, who oversaw the effort to break the Enigma code with this amazing team of people. Here's what's genius about this movie. First of all, Graham Moore, who wrote it. It is one—it's a lifelong—I mean, you, if you heard his speech at the Oscars, was, this was a passion project for him. He related to Turing as a kid, and he just said, I want to tell that story, and he does it beautifully. It's, the, the dialogue is magnificent. Everything about this film you know is what's just funny though.
2: You know what's funny, though? Hmm. Hold that thought. Yeah. For a guy who was motivated to write the story of Turing based on his own yeah. experience, right, yeah. as a gay man— but,
1: but, but the thing is, Graham Moore's not gay. He he gave that speech and said I related. Then everybody's like, "Oh, oh you." Poor. And he's like, no, "No, no, I'm not gay. I just I I was alienated as a kid. Right, and I related right. to that. That was you know. He had to clarify that, which I thought was interesting too. But anyway, but carry that on.
2: but that's where because like there's the the. The gay, whatever gay sub. The, the movie doesn't have a lot of gay subtext. Really, right. the gay. And it was criti- is and It not was criticized.
1: It was criticized by some people for that because it was not like this activist film about you know gay rights and, and eh, discrimination. It, sh- it, shouldn't and so forth. it shouldn't have to
2: be well, that. Shouldn't have to be. Well, that's the thing.
1: I agree because what it what it, it it didn't. The message of the film. It wasn't going to sort of take this banner of 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 gay rights and sort of you know contrast it then and now. It wasn't going to do that. The point was this is a guy who doesn't really belong anywhere and he just happened to be gay but Moore wanted that to sort of be an iconic representation for anyone to relate to who feels like they don't belong. Like you shouldn't have to be gay to relate to Alan Turing. If you just feel like you don't belong but you have something to contribute, whatever your circumstances, whatever your condition, that he wanted people to be able to relate to him.
2: Yes, but at the end of the film yeah. when they have the the uh, – the- the title card yes. that says, you know, X numbers of thousands I means the horrible tragedy. But X yeah. numbers of thousands of gays were. Sure. Just, if he's if he's ending the movie with that, the big statement of the movie, True. and yet he only really introduces the gay I, I, in and the last I would, fifteen minutes.
1: I would I would I would probably suggest that that title card was not uh, part of the original script. That's. I, I my guess is that was probably an addendum. And it was probably marketing driven, but just the same, it's a brilliant film. This is a great film. It is a spy film. It is a World War II spy thriller.
2: That's no, good. In, yep, which I no, agree.
1: in which nobody ever actually even leaves the UK. They barely even leave the compound in London where they're doing all this work, and and that's incredible. Nobody's air you know skydiving into occupied France or anything of that sort. It is just a fantastic film. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Keira Knightley, just sensational. Wonderful supporting cast of great British actors that you have seen all over the place in British television. Uh, a fantastic commentary with uh, Graham Moore and Morton Tildum. First rate, all the way through. You can listen to every second of that commentary and never, ever be bored. They are just wonderful. And uh, making a featurette and some deleted scenes, and that's and that's it. So I suspect maybe we'll get another version of this at some point, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a special edition, but I, would, I don't think so. No, I mean, I
2: maybe so. if it had won Best Picture, yeah. maybe if he had won Best Actor, maybe. Yeah. Um, here are a couple of people who are not going to be winning any best actor or actress uh, awards soon: Jenny Slate, Olivia Wilde, Billy Crudup, and Jason Bateman. Oh my gosh! They star in the Longest Week, and the Longest Week is uh, it's a very derivative little comedy where uh, you know Jason Bateman plays this guy who's cut off by he's a wealthy guy, but he's cut off from his allowance by his parents, so he has to move in with his friend played by uh, Billy Crudup, and then it turns out that uh, you get. Um, Billy Crudup is dating Olivia Wilde and then they – Olivia Wilde and Jason Bateman wind up uh, falling for each other. So it's it's one of those like, you know, threesome sort of films. those yeah. like romantic comedy, wacky, wacky roommate things mm. where you get the two guys go all both going after the hot girl. You know, again, it's pretty derivative, not a lot – not very insightful Um I can't imagine this particular material being a funnier movie just because it's so standard issue. There's just nothing cute about it. Um, I just think it's just nothing. I'm really surprised that it would get this kind of a cast, but I just think it's just completely a misfire.
1: You know, this is a really interesting piece this week. Uh, Gravity is out again in a Diamond Luxe edition, which is this new series that Warner has been releasing a lot of films on. We've had, you know, Forrest Gump and – Green Mile and a few other things in the in the Diamond Lux editions, and um, this is obviously their cinephile line now. But here's what's interesting: there's no 3D version on this.
2: Yay! So,
1: so I'm wondering. Even though Gravity one, I mean, Gravity was considered one of these landmark 3D films, right? I mean, this is uh, one of the things that was supposed to legitimize 3D. But 3D televisions have have the the, the sales are just not what everyone thought they would be. So that, that boondoggle has collapsed. Correct. And uh, so we're fast getting fewer and fewer 3D Blu-rays. Uh, that was kind of a, a rage for a moment and a half, and now that's sort of dropping off. They don't want to spend the extra money. So here's the question. If we now release a cinephile Blu-ray in the Diamond Lux line from Warner Brothers of a movie that was supposed to be a landmark 3D movie, but this cinephile version does not have 3D on it, is that... Does that herald the writing on the wall that everybody may be just backing off of 3D? Well, first and of all,
2: everybody's backing off in 3D anyway. Yeah. They're really backing off from 3D in home theaters. Yes. So I, so if, it, if I went to the store and I saw this and, I, and it says Blu-ray and 3D, I'd be like, is this an old release? Yeah. Because I forgot 3D well, that existed on a, on a TV.
1: I think that's fascinating that, that it, it does not have the, the 3D on it. But what it does have is the new silent space version. Which is without music. So it's, it's, like the, it's like 2001, right? It's like all that stuff when, uh, when Hal has, uh, you know, where, where you're, you're drifting in space and there's just no sound and uh, it's really eerie. It's kind of cool, actually, the whole silent space version.
2: I did, 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 when I saw this movie, it, it it's it, a great it, score. It blew me. Oh, the score is amazing! Thank yeah. God that guy won the Oscar. I was so happy, Stephen Price.
1: But I really, I, I recommend that people get this just for the silent space version because it's a different film. It's fascinating. I don't know if it's a better film. I don't. I don't think it's a worse film, but it's different. It's a completely different sensation. It's really interesting. So I think I, I applaud them for that. I think this is one of the few times where there's been this like extra version of a film. That doesn't feel like it was just some some cockeyed thing that somebody came up with. I, I actually think it works pretty cool.
2: Give me this. You're giving me this. You're not giving me this, are No, you? I'm not. Ugh, I just love this movie. When I saw this movie, it blew me the F away. I could not. I melted my seat. I was just so blown you away. You
1: melted your seat.
2: I melted in my seat.
1: Okay, you melted it Because don't say you melted your seat. Because <laughs> then I start imagining things that I don't really want to imagine. I am start thinking, why would the seat melt? What could possibly cause the seat to melt? What's connecting, anyway? Never mind. Um, Mark,
2: did you see the drop? I did see the drop. Did you like the drop? You know, um, I I, I like the drop just on the strength of Tom Hardy, who I always love, and James Gandolfini. Because Tom, Otherwise, because
1: Tom Hardy kind of talked with this like I, it's sort of sort of Bronxy thing that he had going there. Is it, who
2: Rato Rizzo now?
1: I don't know. It's what it sounded like. He he you changed know, he changed the 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 register of his voice, and he just he he's really a chameleon. He just blows my mind. He's great.
2: I I, I just don't really. I, I I was watching the movie, going, I'm liking this, but what's the point?
1: Yeah, and then it gets to the point, and you go, oh, that's all right. That's that's kind of cool. I um, guess. I guess. It's, uh, you know, it's a crime thing about a a bar that is a drop bar, which is where these, uh, they're Russian mobsters, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, the Russian mobsters, you know, they collect all their their protection money and their gambling money, and then they, you know, to launder it, they drop, these bars in New York are drop bars. It's where the money gets dropped at the end of the day, and they launder, and there's a, you know, the plot has a few other little twists and turns to it, and... um, you you do wonder what's going on here? Who's you know who's this guy that they keep talking about? Who you know that everybody's afraid of? And then there's a, there's a woman, and he befriends this woman, played by Numi Rapace, Rapace, however we want to pronounce her name. Steve. Uh, and uh, you know she's got the crazy boyfriend, who's who's played by our our uh, very beloved uh, um, Belgian actor. Um,
2: oh yeah, from um,
1: Bullhead. Bullhead, sure. Yeah, that guy's great. Uh, whose name I can I, I will just completely destroy. You know, look here
2: is the thing: the, the I have to say the movie does have sort of a pungent sense of place, which yeah. I like. Um, I just think that there's nothing really new here that makes you want to bust into the genre again, unless yeah. you love Tom Hardy, which I do. Yeah. And unless you want to see James Gandolfini's final performance, which of course you should. True. I, I just think this has very legitimate Saturday Night Rental. Written all over it
1: uh, Yeah, sure I'll go with that I'll go with that I just think The performances are really, really good The script should probably be A little better uh, Especially considering that it's You know, written by Dennis Lehane It doesn't Sure uh, You you normally expect
2: Well, Gone Baby Gone
1: Yeah, Mystic River Mystic River But, uh, look Great performances And that that I think holds it up
2: Uh, Yeah It it, puts it. slightly It's like 51-49 Check it out Yeah now wait. Here's the thing. Yes. Now I know Wild got a lot of uh, good notices. Wild earned Reese Witherspoon uh, another Best Actress uh, yeah. nomination. Yeah. I don't get it.
1: Neither do I. I called it Easy Hiker, and that's exactly what I think it is.
2: You know, and I, I have to tell you, you know, I'm really look. The one thing I will give Reese Witherspoon is is this: she's on the screen every scene, she holds it together. She's she's a she's a star. Yeah. She. Carries the movie,
1: but movie on I'm, her I'm, back, I'm just little, like this,
2: just like the the uh, backpack she she. I she am wears. growing
1: tired of movies about people who take these existential journeys to find themselves and to fix everything in their lives, like the Julia Roberts thing. And the, you know, there's there's a half a dozen of these now.
2: Like Eat, pray, love.
1: Yeah, they're, and they're all based on these books about you know usually women who just said I. Uh, I was addicted to heroin, my husband left me, I whatever, whatever horrible things happened to me, I just decided I'm going to go take a hike from blah, blah, blah to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to go visit these countries and they go on these journeys and, and it really doesn't amount to anything terribly dramatic and they try hard. And she does a good job, but it still feels it's easy hiker. You know, you you you, you give her Peter Fonda and a couple of motorcycles, and it's it's it, We've seen it before.
2: I, you're right. I just feel like it's not that memorable. No, it doesn't really stick with you. No, I you know I she walks she hikes around to get over her past and some as you say some uh, you know yeah, a, a metaphorical spiritual journey. Yeah, you got
1: some flashbacks and and yeah.
2: I just it was not uh, not a big fan of it. Although although the director. Uh, I am actually a fan of. I
1: am a huge fan. Uh, of Jean-Marc
2: Valley, Valley is a valet French valet. As, as a Frenchman.
1: Valet, he's he's French Canadian, and you know he did Young Victoria, which I adore. He did. Uh, he won. Oops, mass, he I, I bumped your mic. Thank you. He helped Matt McConaughey win uh, his Best Actor award for uh, Dallas Buyers Club, and uh, made that money for next to nothing, and made it look great. And he's he's a really good director, and I don't I don't fault him. I just fault the material. So
2: I agree, and you know what? Look, uh, just just because. Just because an actress decides not to wear makeup, that's not an excuse to give her an Oscar nomination. You. you know, Just, yeah. uh, no, but, which, by the way, again, Reese Witherspoon holds the screen, holds the movie together, yep. carries it on her back. I get all that, but still, with the, I, I I never found a lot of subtext with her with Reese Witherspoon. No, not she's a lot. She's kind of all on the surface.
1: But I am really looking forward to the new film. Huh? I'm looking forward to this. The, the new, basically, the, uh, the the what's it called? The, the thing that she she's doing with the uh, with uh, Sofia Vergara. The, huh? uh, yeah, it, oh, it, is is
2: that a comedy or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's
1: like Midnight Run with women. <laughs> Looks great. Uh, anyway, Big Eyes. Man, I am so sick of Tim Burton. Could we just... It's over. Oh, my gosh. Right. This was such it's a... It's like
2: Spike Lee. I mean, we were talking about Spike Lee before the show. Uh... Spike Lee, Tim Burton, it's over.
1: Well, first just of all, here's the it. problem. Everybody was. Everybody thought, okay, this is... It's a, And it is a great story. You know, Walter Keane uh, and his wife, Margaret this um, this bizarre true story where he was this famous painter and then it turned out that she actually did all the paintings and he just took the credit for it and the whole thing came to a head in this big you know big show trial where she essentially proved that she she could that she was the painter because when they did a paint off and he uh, said oh my wrist hurts you know i can't paint today i mean it was it was a big fiasco and the whole thing sounds so absurd and so bigger than life you think, holy cow, turn that over to uh, to Tim Burton and have a script by uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky, the guys who, you know, the, the, the same team that gave us Ed Wood. Oh, my gosh. It's made. It's money. And then you cast Christoph Waltz as a guy from Nebraska. What are you thinking? It, it just it, – the whole thing – it it just it's got that Scott Alexander Larry Karashevsky feel to it Man in the Moon you know all the all the eccentric biopics that they always take uh, you know that that they made their specialty but it's too eccentric and it's too broad and and Christoph Waltz is so hot through the whole thing and when I say hot I don't mean oh he's good looking I mean he's pitched his performance is so pitched and he's so over the top and he's so hysterical. And it just it, – it, it this movie drove me crazy. Well, that's
2: Tim Burton's fault. As the director, Tim Burton has to say to Christoph Waltz, stop that.
1: I just don't think Tim Burton has a subtle bone in his body. No, and I he think, doesn't. And I think he's always afraid that his movies will not be fun enough or funny enough. And he tries to give them that extra little weird tweak that he thinks people expect from him. And that's, a, that's death when you're a director. To, when you start worrying about what people expect from you as opposed to what you expect from yourself, it, it, it's death. You, it, I, and, and I see that all the time.
2: And I am also tired of Tim Burton because I, I, you know, like all his other movies, he was attracted to its value as a piece of production design. Sure, the, 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 the paintings, then-
1: the, fa- the paintings are famous. I mean, Big Eyes, the title—you know—we've you, all seen these. They're the famous Keen paintings from you know the sixties, the seventies, where the, with the, the, the little children with the huge eyes, those huge empty dark eyes. Uh, but man, I, I got to tell you, Christoph Waltz just not right. Amy Adams. As Margaret, fine, perfectly fine. she does a good job, but she 's acting in a different movie from uh, from Christoph Waltz and uh, it 's too bad. This could have been you know in in different hands. this might have been a better movie, but wow, what a what a misfire anyway, this is on Blu ray. With Ultraviolet and uh, it only has, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the making of featurette and then this Q&A highlights, which they have started throwing onto a lot of these Blu-rays as well just to fill up extra space. They obviously didn't put anything into this because it didn't perform.
2: Uh, Wade, you talked about misfire. Oh, no, no, no. There is no misfire quite like kidnapping Mr. Heineken. Oh, my gosh. Now, this is based on an interesting true story, which unfortunately did not result in an interesting movie. Uh, in 1983, these, um, these guys, see, well, here's what happened, Wade. They were Dutch. See what I'm talking about? Um, It's the Netherlands. In 1983, these childhood friends, they kidnapped, uh, the heir to the Heineken beer fortune.
1: I I watched 15 minutes of this movie.
2: And... It's just terrible. I
1: couldn't, I could not believe it. I just, this is bottom of
2: the barrel time. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I, it's such a
1: great idea. And I looked at the cast and I thought,
2: well, no, no, you know, for, okay, somehow they got Anthony Hopkins, okay? Yeah. And everybody else signed, and everybody else signed on because they get a scene with Anthony Hopkins.
1: But look, Jim Sturgis, Ryan Quanton, these are up and coming guys, right? I mean they, they have sure. they have a mid-le- middling profile. They're good actors. They're they're sort of looking for that breakout thing. They're they're hoping Marvel will call them and give them a superhero to play. They're they're in that mix. And uh, you know, uh Sam Worthington, he's he's there, right? He just right. He he's, show, he's,
2: he's a big empty suit. He just he shows up in movies. Charisma free Sam Worthington. He,
1: completely charisma free, but he shows up in big movies and he occasionally you know does a decent job. I mean it just felt like all right, I'm I'm down with it. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how completely just stillborn this was.
2: It's so it's so appalling. I just don't understand. No. You know, do I. it's uh you know, Hopkins plays it really almost comatose. Yeah. You know? The um you know the director. He directed the last two uh, Dragon Tattoo movies. Yeah. Back in native yeah. Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, here he's got no particular feel for, you know, gunplay, kidnapping, chases, that yeah. kind of stuff. Ten- you know, creating tense moments. It's just, it's just, it's a complete and utter. Daniel Daniel misfire.
1: Al- Daniel Alfredson, who is the brother of uh,
2: Thomas Thomas uh, uh, Alfredson, that's right? Who directed uh, uh, Let the Right One In?
1: Yeah. Who you know a couple of talented guys and, and, and it's not I don't know I, it just I don't know it doesn't work here it just anyway it's too bad too bad uh, alright enter the dangerous mind don't listen to the voices um, but I
2: want to listen to the voices I
1: know so anyway uh, Scott Bakula is showing up in uh, a lot of middling stuff and this is from Wellgo and uh, this is uh, something that probably could have gotten a minor theatrical release at some point uh, the, uh, th- this is one of those strange thrillers that tries to sort of exploit, um, that tries to sort of exploit technology to generate, uh, suspense and, and, uh, hysteria and paranoia in ways that, uh, used to be associated with things like the occult. And there are a few of these, they're kind of, they're all sort of the, the unholy spawn of Videodrome. I think Cronenberg kind of inadvertently created this subgenre and it pops back every once in a while anyway the uh, the the idea here is J- uh, Jake Hoffman plays this guy who uh, just is holed up and uh, he just he he just listens to his own music and his own soundtrack uh, and uh, it, it's to make the rest of the world just vanish just he wants to isolate everything. And uh, his brother basically uh, kind of tries to drag him out of his obsession and things go horribly, horribly wrong. And the question is, you know, is this – I guess these kinds of movies tend to to sort of want to ask us, are you – you know, is your obsession with fill-in-the-blank pushing you to possibly become one of these, uh, you know, uh, human time bombs or whatever? I I don't know. It, It just feels like a lot of mood. And a lot of laborious plotting and uh, excessive sort of character indulgence to very little yield. But, you know, I give them credit for trying. It's a Blu-ray. It's on a Blu-ray. Well, go. Uh,
2: wait, on DVD we have a little uh, suspense thing called Roadside. Yeah. And um, this is a very simple, which is to say, no budget premise, which is it's a couple on a, des- uh, on a mountain road, mountain highway. And they see a dead tree. They got to pull their car over. And, oh, my God. They're now trapped by a mysterious gunman. Isn't that lovely? In a world.
1: It just, it never stops.
2: So the whole movie has like, you know, eight people in it. And uh, pretty much the whole thing is done kind of on this mountain road. So if there's not a lot going on, you know, location-wise, then it's either got to have a great script, yeah. which it doesn't really, or it has to really ratchet up the tension, right? It's got to yep. be directed and yep. edited, yep. scored sure. with tension in mind, I have to say that uh, Roadside, it has a couple moments. There are a couple moments kind of gripping, yep. kind of moody, a little bit intense. But, you know, look, the thing's 82 minutes. So, you know, how, how, how good is it going to be? So if you like these kind of movies, um, I guess you could do a lot worse than Roadside. Eric England is the guy who um, he directed it and he also wrote it. Um, I think he's probably a better director than he is a writer. A lot of uh, some lame dialogue here. And uh, I was kind of hoping for for more twists and turns in the uh, in the plot, but still, uh, there's some stuff going on here.
1: Uh, and our last new release this week is a thing called John Doe Vigilante, which is a, a low budget but totally serviceable and, and actually pretty interesting uh, story about a guy who is. This is kind of probably the most interesting vigilante, you know, low budget indie film I've seen since since Death Wish, and that's saying a lot. The idea is this guy, he's, uh, he's just decided he's going to, you know, be a one-man justice machine. But then people start copying him. And uh, so then, you know, you get into all of these very interesting ethical areas. And like, you know, any exploitation film from yesteryear, it never really becomes a, a message movie. It never really becomes a conscience movie. It doesn't, it doesn't overly – it never lets the ideas get in the way of the action. Uh, Which is both kind of reassuring and a little bit disappointing, but uh, it it ultimately kind of works. And there are some very interesting extras on here, which uh, really kind of make it more than the usual film of this level. Uh, You get the uh, director and uh, screenwriter commentary... You get uh, uh, several behind-the-scenes featurettes and a uh, really, you know, a couple of behind-the-scenes things on how they made certain scenes in the movie, how they executed some of the more interesting parts of the film, and and it uh, it's it's not bad. So um, I'm going to give a a kind of guarded thumbs up to uh, John Doe Vigilante.
2: Uh, wait, Steve McQueen, not the director, but the iconic actor who had died at 50. You realize that Steve McQueen was know, 50 years old know, when he died?
1: I know. I know but he was but he would he'd, he'd lived a long a, it, you know there was a lot of a lot of life in those 50 years
2: there was Steve yeah. McQueen was one of the icons of his era and uh, this new documentary from the good folks at uh, Shout Factory is okay it's called I Am Steve McQueen a lot of good interviews uh, Pierce Brosnan Gary Oldman uh, they also interview uh, now uh, Steve McQueen you know uh, the, the Bullet and Great Escape whatnot. Uh, he was known for two things cars and women yep that was his thing yep and Steve McQueen, that guy lived. He lived fast yep. and large, and he didn't care. I mean, there, 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 they interview uh, his first wife in the film, and this is during the '60s. And they and she's asked about how the guy was just a complete pea hound. Yeah. yeah, that's what he was. Yeah, and the quote was, he "says he says if he says like why do I have to work for love at home." Would I can get it for free outside? You know, right? And, and somehow, because Steve McQueen right. is so—I put it this way: my, my when when Steve McQueen died, my father cried. Wow, really? Because he was such an icon of cool. Such an icon! Wow, he was it, Steve McQueen is the man. So this is a, it's a little surface for me. I mean, I, I I like the interviews. They talk a lot about how great he was. Now he loved cars and he loved machinery. He loved girls and that kind of stuff. I, I feel like somewhere out there, someone's going to make a better documentary about yeah. Steve McQueen. This is not really it. But if you don't know who he is, or you've heard of him through these other movies like you know Great Escape and Bullet and whatnot, if you want to know who this guy was, you will love this guy. This guy was a badass. And it's man. although it's not the ultimate documentary, the final word, it'll give you a—it's it's a good primer on who he was.
1: Uh, Hoop Dreams is finally on Blu-ray oh, as well.
2: Hoop Dreams
1: Criterion has given us a Blu-ray of Hoop Dreams that is filmmaker approved. It's got that little seal on it. Uh, it took three filmmakers to make this: Steve James, who's made a lot of documentaries since, along with Frederick Marks and Peter Gilbert, uh, a great trio who worked incredibly well making this film and uh, it's it, you know Hoop Dreams is is not exactly the kind of film that lends itself to Blu-ray it's not a masterpiece of cinematography you're not going to watch it on DVD and then go boy I wish this was on Blu-ray it just doesn't look good enough because they basically followed these kids around and everybody should know this story these are a couple of kids who want to become pro basketball players and it's it's just about the pain and the anxiety and the struggle of of, what, of their journeys. And um, they stuck with them for years. So, I mean, this is them following these guys around and and getting whatever footage they could of them with their families and their and their schools and their playing and their doubts and their, their dreams and all of that stuff. And it is, it, this film's been imitated so much. You have to say, this is one of the landmark documentaries of all time.
2: Uh, put it this way. This movie, Roger Ebert loved this movie so yep. much that he asked Steve James, the director... To direct the documentary about Roger Ebert yes. as he was dying of cancer,
1: and let's let's remember, Hoop Dreams is such an amazing landmark documentary that it received the highest of all accolades that any documentary can possibly receive. It did not win the Academy Award because all the great docs don't win. That's right. It's unbelievable. Uh, we're not going to get into what actually won that year, but it's just it's. It's just stunning. It's just breathtaking that Hoop Dreams did not win the Academy Award perhaps because it's three hours long, but I don't care. It uh, doesn't need it. It's great. Two audio commentaries, um, one with the filmmakers, one with the film subjects. And uh, you also get a new documentary that brings you up to date. It's called Life After Hoop Dreams, and you sort of find out, you know, it's been I mean it's been it's been 20 years, Mark. In twenty
2: years, yeah, where are those kids? By that's the way, that's the
1: thing. That's what you find out in life after You're hoop on. dreams, and it's really interesting. It's it's wonderful. It almost turns this into a into a Michael Apted film. It almost feels like you know uh, twenty up uh, or forty up or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then you get a a bunch of uh, excerpts from Siskel and Ebert on the, about the film. And uh, as well as the original 1994 music video for the theme song. It is, uh, it is just fantastic. Oh, wait. Fantastic. I,
2: I can sing that song. Yeah. Dreams, no, you're not. Stop it. You're Stop dribbling it. the goal. No.
1: Oh, no. And you're no, no. In high school. No, don't do that. Don't dreams. do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Please don't do that. And then uh, World War One: the people's story, is a release from Athena, which is the uh, acorn educational line, uh, which is uh, – this is just absolutely wonderful. This is um, essentially the – it humanizes the story of World War I by giving you, uh, you know, by reading from excerpts from original diaries and and letters and uh, personal accounts of the people who were, you know, immersed in World War I to various degrees and in various places. And uh, it uses historical footage and readings by a lot of really, really great actors uh, to sort of give you that... Sort of the way that the Civil War that Ken Burns did with the Civil War, a lot of that stuff, these dramatic readings combined with archival footage, it's really good. it's really good. So on the 100th anniversary as we continue to celebrate uh, 100 years since World War I, uh, this continues to give you this very, very personal impression of it, and it is, uh, it is beautiful and it includes a, the usual educational 12- page viewers' guide, along with a whole bunch of other educational materials, so really great stuff.
2: Wait. Uh, what should we do? Should we do get into some uh, Blu-ray news? Should we get into? Uh, I think some mail. More? I think.
1: I think let, you know. Let me let you read some mail.
2: Oh. Let
1: me read some mail. All righty. We have from. Uh, let's see. From Billy Milby. Billy Milby writes. Um, you guys, do you think a new with a new edition of 2001 would include the recently unearthed footage from a couple of years ago, about 15 minutes or so? Um, Mark, what do you think?
2: No, absolutely not. Not in a million years. No. No, because Why? because Kubrick wouldn't have. If Kubrick wanted that, he would have put it in the movie. Yeah. Now, now, now maybe you can make it as an extra. R- well, that's, that's a question. You wouldn't cut it into. You would no. edit it into the film.
1: No, but will they will they include? it? Will, will there be a new special edition with that as a, as an extra? Do you think?
2: Uh, you would have to come out with a special edition just for the purpose of that. 'cause otherwise it's been out on Blu ray a couple times already. Yeah. I'm going to say uh no. I'm going to say that maybe there'll be like a special showing of it and they'll show the the extras as part of the special roadshow showing of it. But um I don't know man. You're asking yeah. you you'd be asking people to like triple dip. Uh What what do you think? Would you would you uh,
1: I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I uh, it, it it feels like it
2: feels like Kubrick would be mad at me.
1: Kubrick would be mad, but that hasn't Kubrick's passing, like the passing of many a director, has opened up the possibilities of doing things to exploit material in ways the directors would have disappro- disapproved. Uh, however, he still has guardians. You know what I mean? Leon Vitali is still there with a with a with a hatchet ready to scalp anybody who uh, who dares sully the reputation. Uh, so, you know, there's still people who sit there. Jan, you know, his. his uh, Jan Harlan? Jan Harlan, his brother in law. Uh, they're all still there guarding the tomb, as it were. And uh, so I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Had a great question from, uh, from Walter Gass. Wanted to know about Blu ray releases for some Harrison Ford titles, specifically Witness, Frantic, and Regarding Henry. Yeah. Now, Witness,
2: that one should definitely be out. That's, yeah. a, that's a bit of an oversight.
1: Here's the thing. As I explained to him, regarding Henry and Witness are paramount titles. Which and means that
2: they're going to – they'll slough that off to uh, – to, to Warner Brothers. To Warner Brothers.
1: Uh, so basically Warner, we have to wait for Warner Brothers to decide that they're going to do it. Uh, and who knows? And then there's also the possibility that Olive could you know, take over some of those as well. So uh, you know, it's interesting. You have to, we're we're going to have to just wait. Uh, Frantic is interesting because Frantic is a Warner film. And uh, I'm hoping that that will, uh, you know, that the new management at Warner will not unduly sabotage the release of Frantic. Because Frantic's a really interesting movie. It's a very Hitchcockian film. It's one of the more interesting Polanski films from the last, you know, 25 years or whatever. But um, the other thing about Frantic, do you know about the change of the ending with Frantic? I saw Frantic in the original cut. Which is great. Now, spoilers here for people who have never seen Frantic, and hopefully you have. The, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's got a MacGuffin, right? There's the, the, the microfilm or whatever, that the reason they, they kidnap his wife and the whole thing. and he, you know, That's what sets everything in motion. In the, the original ending, he's got it in his hand, and they, they're driving past a, a garbage truck, and he, there he is in Paris, and he just tosses it out the window and into the garbage bin. Now that's to me a really interesting ending. Apparently, the the idiots who tested the film, uh, other than than me, thought that was a lame ending. So they reshot this ending where he has this big standoff with a couple of goons on a bridge, and it's a it's a horrendous ending. The new ending is just lame. So I'm hoping. That the original ending can be restored in some kind of a branching edition, and that they, that, you know, that frantic sort of gets its due again. But honestly, apart from Polanski and Harrison Ford, it's considered a minor Polanski film and a minor Harrison Ford film. So I don't know that that's ever really going to uh, be on Warner's, you know, a list of things to do. So we'll have to wait and see. But I'm hoping they'll get around to it. And uh, then Axel Peronio, who recently sent us some uh, some some lovely little gifts. Axel, we want to thank yes. you for that.
2: Yes. Well, okay. Hang on a second. Yes. Because you said that, I know. I I, 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 I now have to make sure Axel knows that Wade Major I keep
1: forgetting to bring the the, the special gift for Mark. Who was the br-
2: keeper of the special gift for Mark? Forgot to give the special well, gift. I only give.
1: got it. I only picked it up at uh, at KPCC the other day. So I it, it ha- I haven't had it that long. I promise I will not keep it from you. It's a what? It's a, it, I won't open it because it's addressed to you. So it's I don't know what it is. I know. Thanks, I bring, Wade. It. I'll bring it next. time
2: Now Axel has to wait like forever right. to find out. My re- here's what you should do. Yeah. Whenever you get around to it, God forbid you get around to bringing me this present from Axel. Spent a lot of time, money to send it over. Come on. We'll open it up on the show. We'll do that for sure.
1: Uh, Anyway, Axel wrote us and he sent us a a great picture. He said uh, that he finally saw Patton the other day for the first time. And uh, he found out that Patton is actually buried in the Luxembourg American War Cemetery that's close to where he lives and close to where he works. And uh, so he went and, and got a picture of it. And uh, that's pretty great. Uh, it makes me want to actually go and visit it. And he's, he said he's next going to go to visit the uh, World War II memorial in Bastogne, Belgium. So um, kind of cool that a movie would, you know, inspire him to do a little bit of research. And then you discover, hey, look what's near my... Look what I can, I can go visit something that has, is, has you know, real historical value is tied into the, to the movie itself.
2: All right, wait, no one cares about that. Here's what people really care about. Yes. And when I say really... When I say people... I mean Wade Major. Yes. September fifteenth, Wade. What? Mark it down.
1: September fifteenth, what what twentieth
2: Century Fox Home Entertainment. Oh dear.
1: The entire series. Oh no.
2: Lost in space.
1: You know, uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just added that to the calendar and, and fired off a request for it. I, I bet I, you did. I I can't think of anything that I would like to see more than the carrot people in high def. That's, Damn right. Uh, yeah.
2: Twilight time they are uh, they they just announced their uh, July and August slates. Let's see who we have. Let's see who we have from the good people at Twilight Time. Uh, we've got uh, the fabulous Baker Boys, which is a terrific film. So good, just terrific.
1: I, I just red dress piano shoot me. I, uh, it's the Michelle
2: best. Pfeiffer was so hot back then. Gosh, um, the best. And by the way, for her age, she's kind of hot now. Holy uh, totally. Pla- places in the heart. Great movie. Also great. Woody Allen once again Twilight Time going to the Woody Allen well Midsummer's Night sex comedy Uh,
1: one of the minor ones but still fun
2: now guess who's coming to dinner you know I have my issues with Stanley Kramer now as I've grown up become more mature my movie going tastes Stanley Kramer was like an issue director and sometimes man that guy just hits it on the head too hard for me and I think you know that 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 scene at the end of Guests Who's Coming to Dinner when Spencer Tracy like they're all wondering Spencer Tracy going to allow this to happen or not? He has this big speech. It's like, oh, look at you, you magnanimous middle aged white jerk. You know what I mean? It's it's very much a product of its time uh, now.
1: You know what I love about Guests Who's Coming to Dinner? I love the fact that Katherine Hepburn's niece is in the movie and she's terrible. <laughs> I just, I it's, she's just horrible. There's no other reason for her to be in that movie. And every time she opens her mouth, you just think. Wow, Sidney Poitier, why are you marrying her? You could do so much better. She's We're so mean. No, she's not. She's stupid. <laughs> she's stupid. Wow, she's, she's stupid and she's just, she's horrible. There's nothing appealing about her. That's that's the one thing in that film. The, every, the, the, the big question is supposed to be, will he accept the black son-in-law? How can he... Re- but my question was always, why is he wanting to marry her? She's a horrible. She's a horrible this, actress,
2: but she's pretty uh, and sweet and nice. No, she's terrible. Right, a couple more things. Uh, Ken Burns, Civil War, coming to Blu-ray. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Damn right. Landmark. That's one where... I mean, you're really kind of justified in buying that if you wanted to. I mean, Civil War, I, I, I do not have baseball, his baseball documentary on Blu-ray, although I really should have it at this point. You should. But Civil War, that's a great one. What else? What, what else? Uh, let's see. What else? Um, hmm. Oh, uh, Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight. Oh, that's good. On Blu-ray. Yeah. Finally. Nice. British, uh, British Distributor. Yeah. So God forbid it should come out with an American distributor. Yeah. But it is being, uh, it's being all figured out by the small British distributor, Mr. Bongo. Nice. Can't beat that.
1: Well, speaking of Twilight Time, Mark, we have a bunch of Twilight Time titles. What? Yep, we got a bunch of Twilight Time titles. And then we'll, we'll do the Vox Box uh, after Twilight Time. It, no, not aw. yet. Not yet. Uh, Twilight Time has, their, uh, has this week's uh, releases out. And they have changed their packaging. Twilight Time is now using the clear Blu-ray packaging that is favored by a number of other companies like, you know, Drafthouse and, and Cohen. There are a number of companies that use it, and it has a certain cinephile quality to it. It's becoming associated with class and distinction. So uh, the clear, as opposed to the blue packaging, is uh, is now a thing. And uh, these new releases in their limited edition series, which are all 3,000 copies apiece, available only at ScreenArchives.com, we begin with a movie I never thought I'd, I'd see released on Blu-ray, which is April Love. Um, April Love is a 1957 uh, really kind of strange musical melodrama starring Shirley Jones and Pat Boone and uh, it's, uh, you know, wrong side of the, the track's kids. Uh, it, with Pat Boone as a delinquent of all things it's so strange but um, you know what it, it's, it's actually a, a kind of a there's a weird little nostalgia to this film that uh, is, in, is sort of endearing so you get the usual isolated score track that all the Twilight Time uh, titles have you get a Shirley Jones and uh, film historian Nick Redman commentary which is fun Shirley Jones is always good for uh, a laugh or two And the trailer. And then uh, I think far and away the greatest release that has ever come from Twilight Time is this one. Mark, are you ready? I'm ready. Remains the day.
2: Yeah, now what, why does Twilight Time have to release that? That's just I, I, it, pathetic. It, it
1: is unbelievable. Remains of the Day was a huge multiple Oscar winner. Of course, didn't win because it was the same year as Schindler's List. Nothing else was going to win that year. But I, I would argue, my wife would argue that uh, uh, Howard Zend is the best film that uh, Merchant Ivory ever made. I would argue Remains of the Day is the best film. Regardless, they are both nearly perfect movies. And the book reading scene, the book scene in Remains of the Day, remains one of the most magical pieces of cinema ever. Uh, Anthony Hopkins and uh, Emma Thompson just could not be more perfect in this film. It is wonderful in every conceivable way. Screenplay by Ruth Parr, Jabvala, based on the uh, Kazuo Ishiguro novel.
2: Did Did she not die recently? Yes, she did. Yes.
1: Yeah. And it's just fantastic. Also produced, by the way, not just by Ismail Merchant, but get this as a trio of producers. Mike Nichols, John Kelly, Ismail Merchant.
2: I bet. I bet Nichols at some point was maybe he was planning on directing attached to it. Yeah,
1: yeah. he was. But what a great trio with people sure. just on, for the marquee. It's like wow. Sure, great film. Here's the best thing about this. Yes, you get the isolated score track. You also get all the extras that were on the extra loaded original uh, Columbia TriStar uh, home video DVD release. And uh, that is fantastic because you, the the commentary here with uh, James Ivory, Ismail Merchant, and Emma Thompson is to die for. It is wonderful. It's one of my all time favorite commentaries, and it is preserved on the Blu-ray. So you don't uh, they didn't they didn't jip it when they licensed it to Twilight Time. And uh, you get the making of Remains of the Day uh, and, uh, you know, all these other little featurette uh, tidbits that they've tacked in here, uh, as well as some deleted scenes with optional commentary. It is a fantastic uh, release. It's the best thing Twilight Time's ever done. The best. We also have uh, Zardoz, the the John Borman film that is both loved and reviled. Uh, John Borman films tend to fall into the camp of either masterpiece or just embarrassing failure beyond all comprehension. Uh, You know, for every exorcist to the heretic, you also have a deliverance, right? Zardoz, nobody can quite make up their mind. Some people love it. Other people just think it's stupid. Either way, it's an aging Sean Connery in a loincloth in the most bizarre science fiction tale you have ever seen. And ultimately, when it gets the big payoff at the end, you're either going to go, that is really cool, or you will go, you have got to be seriously. I sat around for two hours waiting for that. The story of Adele Osh recently also came out from Fox on uh, DVD as a DVD R of all things. And uh, if that offends you, as it does me, because this is the story of uh, Victor Hugo's daughter starring Isabella Gianni, an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant film directed by Francois Truffaut, one of his greater later films. Uh, This is out now on uh, Blu ray from Twilight Time, and thank goodness, it is magnificent. It is gorgeous, it is a great transfer. Um you know, could have been better, but I will take it. I will take whatever I've got because the D V D R is just not sufficient. Uh the Fantastics. Maybe Mike Ritchie's I don't know, next to Downhill Racer, would you say that this is maybe his next to Fletch?
2: Bad News Bears.
1: Yeah, true. But Bad Fantastics is fun, right?
2: Bad News Bears.
1: Bad News Bears.
2: It's the greatest movie ever made. It's fun, right? The Fantastics? It's good. Sure. Yeah.
1: Bad news bears. Yeah. Bad news bears. Sure. But anyway, <laughs> or flesh. We get well. We get a Blu-ray of the Fantastics, which I'm okay. I'm okay with. You know, this was uh, kind of a big Broadway deal, and uh, it it was a little bit of a peculiar thing when it finally became a movie. Um, doesn't I, I, it dates not terribly well, but uh, you know, I think it's I think it's perfectly fine and nostalgic and uh, enjoyable. And uh I'm I'm willing to uh I'm willing to hang on to it and watch it, you know, and show my daughter one day. And then lastly, the man who will play Cogsworth, Mark Ian McKellen is Richard III. Yeah. That's right, Richard III out from Twilight Time. I I had some reservations about this. I know this was a big deal on stage. Uh it's a great adaptation until, you know, it's it's all kind of a World War II... Era thing, and you're wondering what's he going to do when he comes to the My Kingdom for a Horse speech? Because there aren't any horses; they're driving, you know, jeeps and tanks and whatnot. My Kingdom for a Ford Mustang, and you know, his then his jeep gets like stuck in the mud, and he says, "Ah, My Kingdom for a Horse," and and everyone started laughing. I saw this at a pretty packed screen; everyone started laughing, and I thought, "I'll bet that works better on stage." Nonetheless, uh, it's good; it is good. Apart from that moment that doesn't work at all, it's good. Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, Maggie Smith uh, Annette Bening you know, Jim Broadbent Robert Downey Jr. It's a great cast It's really nicely put together And Richard Loncrane Who hasn't done an awful lot since uh, Quite probably the right director For the material I would say So uh, there you go That's the Twilight Time Blu-ray releases for this month Whee Alright Mark You know what it's time for oh,
2: Can do I it. do it? Do it,
1: do it. <laughs>
0: Mark and Wade is Chevelle Dixon, and so my questions about Disney. Now, at the time of recording this Thursday, I just found out the news that they're going to do a live-action version of Winnie the Pooh. Which got me wondering, why are they so obsessed with doing all these live-action versions of their films? You know, you got The Jungle Book coming out next year, and you have the news about Dumbo being done by Tim Burton, which makes me sad for Tim Burton... And, you know, Beat and the Beast, just had Cinderella. And I'm wondering, what other films are they going to do? And what films would you like them to do, live-action versions of? Personally, it would be interesting to see them do a Robin Hood, of course done by Ridley Scott, since his Robin Hood was so good, and you guys loved it so much. it would be interesting to see what he does with it, if he can do a better job. Thank you, and keep up the good work.
1: Thank you, Chevelle. And that plugs in perfectly today because we've talked about Tim Burton and his problems, and we've talked uh, a little bit earlier about all of the. We just, you know, talked about Ian McKellen as Cogsworth and all the, the Disney things and that whole, everything that has, you know, their whole live action obsession. So I think it is a timely question and it is a valid question. Uh, I will go first on this. I am I'm not happy with the idea that they're taking all their classic animated titles and remaking them as live action. Uh, I, I think it's uh, cowardly and uncreative, and you could better spend that energy doing other things. That said, if they wind up doing a good job and not sort of sullying the original material, I, I can accept it. I wish they wouldn't, but if they wind up sort of redeeming themselves, I'm, I walk in a skeptic. But if they redeem themselves like they have with Cinderella, where it's, it's like, well, that's lovely. Uh, then I will be reluctantly okay with it, and I I will say this: Beauty and the Beast is sounding like a winner. It's sounding like they've got all the right people on board. We talked about Bill Condon, you know. It's it sounds like a winner. Winnie the Pooh, you know what? I I loved Paddington, but uh, I I don't I don't know that a live action Winnie the Pooh is something that I'm ever going to be able to wrap myself around. Maybe the maybe the the CGI Peanuts will convince me otherwise. I would be shocked. Winnie the Pooh just should know that that's. He doesn't wear pants. I can't I can't. No. Uh, that's uh, no. I j- you know, I don't I don't know. I, I, here's what I think they're going to do. I think Dumbo's going to tank. I think that's going to be a fiasco. Um I guarantee you that they're sitting around waiting to see how all the underwater stuff works out in Aquaman and if that turns out okay, they're going to announce a uh, a little mermaid f- a live action film.
2: Oh god help us all.
1: And and, and um you know who knows how that'll work. I mean, they're great songs, just like Beauty and the Beast. They are great songs. But we should have seen all the writing on the wall with all of this stuff when Disney started turning everything into a Broadway franchise. Uh, the next step, the next inevitable step, was let's do a live-action movie. Uh, well, so. look,
2: it to me, I, I think what activated this might have been Alice in Wonderland. I mean, Alice in Wonderland. True, for sure. I mean, now that's not a that's not a direct Disney animated film, but it's a it's a beloved. You know, it,
1: it's, it's a, a it's all. I mean, that movie was, is not we should point out that the Burton Alice in Wonderland is not even a straight Alice in Wonderland. It's kind of a sequel to Alice in Wonderland. And,
2: uh, it, it but it's beloved more in animated, if not yes, Disney animated correct. form. It showed that an animated, animated form. it
1: showed that an animated property could, in this day and age, with uh, the embellishment of special effects, could live in a live action world. And still be successful.
2: I mean, that they made a billion dollars. I know. So now you got Pinocchio, Mulan, Beauty and the Beast, yeah. Dumbo, Winnie the Pooh, all these other films. And of course, Maleficent also, yeah. that also did a lot towards activating I Disney's that, interest.
1: I think Maleficent is the film that that really made them go back and start looking at everything.
2: You know, and so I, I, I'm i a little bit with Wade where I, I, the, I don't like the mercenary feel of it. But, you know... I, it, I was heartened that they had that they asked Kenneth Branagh to do Cinderella for sure because okay that's, that's a good match of director sensibilities and material it's not let's just get some, <clears throat> let, it's not like let's get Tim Burton okay w- w- when they say let's get Tim Burton I'm worried right when they say let's get Kenneth Branagh I'm like okay they might be trying yeah so I don't li- I'm with Wade I don't like the fact that it feels so mercenary however if they do treat the material right which by the way is not a given with Disney if they do treat the material right you know anything can happen True,
1: I agree. I agree. Um, so, thank you, Chevelle. That was a really good question. And I, you know, are there any that I would like them to make? That was the one I kept thinking: Is are there any Disney live action? Uh, they animated should make Lady places?
2: and the Tramp with uh, Melissa McCarthy and Paul Rudd.
1: Yeah, that's what they should do. <laughs> um, no, I, I got to thinking. I was like, you know what? Are there any? Are there any animated Disney properties that I would enjoy seeing done? Uh, live action you know
2: there's gonna be a frozen live action movie sure
1: but I think you'd be surprised at the one that I'm gonna pick Because uh, I I like remakes where you take something that didn't work right the first time and you fix it the second time around. Those are the films that I like seeing remade. You know, like old exploitation. Ocean's Eleven being an example, right? Ocean's Eleven is a crap movie. Apart from Sinatra and all the guys and the whole rat pack, that's a crap movie. But they took it and they're like, okay, there's a germ of a great idea here. Let's turn it around and fix it. And they fixed it and they made it better. Uh, so I say Look at the Disney animated stuff That really should not have been made Should not have been animated And see if there's something there You can work with I think The Black Cauldron Would be an interesting film To do live action I think it would work better Live action than as an animated film It's not a good animated film
2: I I, I just think you like that film As as a fanboy. You love that film too much Yeah maybe You know uh, yeah, well, here, maybe. Well, here's, well, here's, here's what you could do You could do Peter Pan You could do Pocahontas Right Sure do Peter Pan, you do Pocahontas, Mulan they're already doing, uh, you know, Sleeping Beauty obviously, um, hmm, I'm trying to think what other ones, you know, there's ones like Aladdin, maybe you can do Aladdin, maybe a little bit more earthbound Aladdin, sure, uh, I think that might be k- uh, kind of it off the maybe. top of my head.
1: Well, anyway, we're getting close to the end of the show. So uh, let me wrap out with just a few final thoughts. Um, we one, uh, oh, one, final
2: thoughts. Sorry, wait. yeah.
1: No, one, one TV release uh, that we want to make mention of is Mondavino, the series, which is um, – it's a force it, – like, this is like a huge 10-hour, four-disc series on wine. Which, I'm not a wine drinker, but I find the whole culture of wine and grapes and winelands to be really fascinating. Especially things like, you know, how, I'm, like, you know, there was, you know, the, 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 uh, the fact that so many grapes in France were destroyed by, you know, disease. And they had to replant them with Northern California grapes. I mean, so there are certain, I mean, there are all kinds of really interesting histories to, to that. Anyway, Mondavino the series uh, is this amazing comprehensive series about uh, winemaking. And it took five, like five, four or five years to do this and going all over the world. And uh, it's really extraordinary. Um, you're, you're just going with some of these amazing wine experts and you're going to every single part of the, of the planet where uh, wine is part of the culture. And um,
2: you know, that's based on a documentary.
1: Delving into the history of it. It's really extraordinary. In 2004,
2: there was a documentary called Mondavino about the making of wine. That's what this is. Oh, is it the movie or the, or the TV this is series?
1: A, well, it's a series.
2: Oh, but this was an actual documentary. In two thousand four, okay. I have it. All right, I I have it on DVD. Because as you can see uh, from some books on my shelf, I'm a I, wine guy.
1: I, I mean, it, this is this is this this is from two thousand four. So I mean, it's, oh really? It's a series. I mean, it, interesting. It's, well, it's like ten hours long.
2: Well, the, well, the movie ain't ten hours long.
1: Well, then maybe the movie that you're thinking of was cut down.
2: Ooh, interesting. I yeah. thought you meant it was a new because I've I've not seen Mondavino, on Divino, no, no, the no, no, TV no. series. This is from two thousand four. Interesting. It's great. It's really great. Don't stop the recording.
1: And then we've also got uh, a great box set here, the Simon Wiesenthal collection, which includes a couple of Academy Award-winning documentaries, Genocide and Long Way Home. Uh, These are 11 documentaries in total. Uh, basically on Jewish life and the Holocaust and uh, obviously you know you have the, the two Oscar winners who are more famous but you have other stuff in here like Liberation Echoes That Remain uh, Winston Churchill uh, Walking With Destiny uh, you know it's it's really quite uh, quite an extraordinary collection of films it's really good and this comes from Cine and Docurama and it's just a nice big old box that uh, sh- for any history buff who is uh, who wants a comprehensive chronicle of that pe- of that period and that subject you can't can't do, can't do poorly to put this up there right next to, you know, Showa and whatever else you have on your, on your shelf. Absolutely. And then lastly, we've got a half dozen new titles from the Fox Cinema Archives collection. These are all DVD-Rs. Uh, I'll go through these real quickly. Uh, one is the Stuart Rosenberg directed movie Move with Elliot Gould and Paul Apprentice uh Boy, this thing this just this this is a movie from that weird gap between the late sixties and the early seventies, and it kind of feels like it belongs to both periods and uh Elliot Gould, of course, plays a struggling writer who writes pornography. And walks dogs. Hey, gotta make a living. People
2: gotta make a living.
1: It's just one of those Elliot Gould roles that you kind of you you know that guy played so many thankless parts, didn't he? Elliot, when you look at I love him. Come on, but when you look at the roles that he played and the things that he was expected to do in those roles, you just think, my gosh, everyone just dumped on this guy. It's just like we got a crazy loser who does eccentric things.
2: Gould. He starred in two of my favorite Robert Altman films. Mash. Long goodbye. Long goodbye. Sure. Love them.
1: Uh, and then, I remember
2: – wait. There,
1: <laughs> okay, during, go on. During
2: LAFCA time, I don't know if you were at the screening. And I don't, this might have been the screening of the Social Network. I can't remember. But it was a screening at the Director's Guild of some big movie during LAFCA Awards voting time. Yeah. And everybody's dressed – I mean not in suits, but sure. everyone's dressed for a meeting, uh, for a, a screening at a reception at the Director's Guild. Okay. Right? So we see the movie, whatever it was. Can't remember. And we leave to get the free food, which, of course, is my favorite part of any screening during of time. And who shows up in a tracksuit? Elliot Gould. That's pretty In a tracksuit. That's pretty great. A, 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 one, a unicolored tracksuit. There's Elliot great. Gould. <laughs> because when well, you're that old and you're that cool, you can do whatever you want because you're cool and yeah. you're old. Well,
1: we've also got uh, I Ought to Be in Pictures, the Neil Simon uh, piece that was directed by Herbert Ross. Uh, in 1982, with Walter Matthau and Anne Margaret, which is which is a uh, you know it it kind of it's a little dated, but I, I it's per- still perfectly fine. I mean, anything Neil Simon is better than nothing. Neil Simon, uh, and then you have Key Exchange, which uh, stars Brooke Adams, Ben Masters, and Daniel Stern with uh, along with Tony Roberts and Danny Aiello. Um, this is based in a uh, this is a kind of not such a great movie based in a Kevin Wade play directed by Barnett Kellman. Uh you know it, this it, it this was originally an off-Broadway play it kind of feels a little dated as well but it's it's out on DVDr if you want it uh Justine better than better than average film uh this is kind of a this has great music by Jerry Goldsmith by the way as, as usual but um kind of an unusual later George Cooper film that uh Kind of still, you know, you, like he's still got the spark, but uh, not quite getting what he what he should out of the actors, which includes uh, Dirk Bogarde and Anouk Aimée. Um, but still, you know, there's some there's some good stuff in here. And then the last two, uh, Together Brothers, which is a completely forgotten film that is so timely again with all of the you know all these these race issues and these police shootings, and uh, you, you kind of feel like, wow, I don't. You know, have we kind of gone back in time again? And it's uh, as disturbing as all that is. A movie like *Together Brothers* is probably worth revisiting. This is a movie that is 40 years old and suddenly feels uh, incredibly timely. Um, so you might want to definitely check that. It is. It is from the black exploitation era, but should not be considered a black exploitation film. It's much too serious of a drama. And then, lastly, uh, Mickey Spillane's novel *I, the Jury* became uh, an okay film in the hands of director Richard T. Heffron. Uh, with a, a better-than-average performance by Armand Asante and, uh, you know, nice supporting turns by Barbara Carrera and Alan King. Um, really, otherwise sort of a, a, a not-really-terribly-distinguished film. Uh, but, if you, you know, for Armand Asante, I think it's, uh, it's worth checking out. And also for the fact that Larry Cohen, exploitation-meister Larry Cohen, adapted the Spillane novel. And, you know, I still love Larry Cohen. Even when he's not up to snuff, you still feel that he's... He's excited and doing interesting work. So And
2: the Larry Cohen, who directed Black Caesar. Oh, of course. Come on, Fred Williamson.
1: And, and Q, the winged monster, Ketzalcoatl.
2: And It's Alive, see? one of the last scary films I've ever, I ever saw. Because I, I realized I didn't like them.
1: All right, we'll see you next week. So